Do you remember the Magic Eye posters and books that became popular in the, the 90s and early 2000s? You would see the posters in places like Walmart and the, the, the books were, were kind of a, a coffee book type table. In these pictures, it's just a, a, a mess of, of colors and shapes and supposedly you can stare at it for a certain amount of time in a certain way and a 3D image will pop out at you. They're called stereograms. Now, how many of you have, have ever been able to see the 3D image that is inside of that? Okay, and how many of you think that everybody that claims to see them is lying? That's me. I don't know how many hours I have spent staring at those posters. And on Thursday, I spent another 15 minutes looking at this image, trying to find this this 3D image that supposedly is hidden in there. And there's all kinds of different techniques that people tell you that you can use. That you're supposed to focus your eyes or unfocus your eyes, cross your eyes, start up close, and then slowly move back. And I've tried all of them, and they never seem... To work. Our vision is such a, a magnificent tool, isn't it? In fact, the, the language of being able to see is so critical to us, sight is so critical to us that we use the language of sight to describe a number of things, particularly the ability to understand. Do you see what I mean? It's clear as mud, isn't it? And we say that seeing is believing. Visual perception is the ability to organize and interpret information that is seen and give it meaning. And whenever there is a disruption in that process, learning is inhibited. It doesn't mean that learning can't take place. It just means that a different set of teaching methods must be employed in order to get that same information across. You may know somebody that that has um, dyslexia. That that is a disruption in the ability to, to see and interpret and provide meaning to what is seen. And that person often struggles to learn until somebody comes along and gives them a different set of teaching methods. I share this with you to talk about the way that Jesus teaches. Because Jesus taught in a way that I don't know that many of us would like Him as a preacher. Because Jesus didn't often quote from Scripture. Jesus didn't provide outlines and there were Um, no clear points to what he said. Often, he just told stories. And he just kind of left those stories out there. He didn't tell you why he was telling the story. He just left the story and then kind of walked away. It was after one of those stories in which he was talking about a farmer that was planting in his field that his disciples come up to him and they ask, why do you teach like this? And he says that the people that he is teaching to, that they don't have the ability to see. And he looks at his disciples and he says, but blessed are your eyes because they see. 
In fact, I, I tell you that the prophets and a lot of righteous people have longed to see what you have the ability to see, but they couldn't see it. And you have to ask, what is it that they see? Because they don't understand why Jesus is telling the stories. They don't understand the point of the story. They're having to come up to Him afterwards and say, Jesus, explain this story to us. What they have the eyes to see is who Jesus is. That becomes even more clear a couple of chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew. As Jesus has taken His disciples to a place known as Caesarea Philippi. In Caesarea Philippi, that, there was uh, one of the, the largest headwaters. It was where um, the Jordan River kind of started. And as a result of, of having the, these headwaters there, the land was very fertile. And it became a very popular place to practice worship. Because you want to go to a place where, where life is flourishing and you, you think that that's where you can come into contact with God. And it's in this place that we still have remnants of, of places where they worshipped all kinds of gods in this place. And he takes his disciples there and he asks them, what do you see? What do you see whenever you look at me and Peter speaks up and he says that you are the Messiah you are the son of the living God he says that, that you are the king the king is not Herod the king is not Caesar but you are the one that we have been waiting for and to emphasize what Peter sees he says that you are the son of the living God in contrast with all of the idols, all the other worship that goes on here, all the, the background noise, he says that, Jesus, you are the one that pops out. You are the one that rises above everything else. This last week, I, I spent a couple of days in Malibu, uh, California, for a continuing education opportunity and uh, flew into LAX caught an Uber to, uh, to take me to Malibu. And in the conversation with the driver of this, uh, this car from LAX to Malibu, the, the, the driver was uh, raised Baptist and has visited all kinds of different churches and religions and hasn't been satisfied with anything that he's found anywhere. And at one point he asked me, Jeff, isn't all religion, religions essentially telling the same story? What he's doing is he's looking at, at all of these different colors and all of this, this mess of images, and he's saying, isn't it all essentially the same thing? But the claims of Jesus make that impossible. That Jesus is the Son of the living God. That He alone is Lord. Now that they see that, and it's become clear that they see who Jesus is, He begins to reveal His plan as King, 
as ruler. The first part of Jesus' plan is that he's going to establish his community. He tells Peter that I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. This part of the plan, the disciples could get on board with that that they are going to be surrounded by like-minded people. It is this part of the plan that that we all enjoy, that, that we all can get on board with. Because we love to be surrounded by people who share a set of values. But it's the second part of the plan that Jesus reveals that is disorienting to the disciples. He says, and now, instead of overthrowing the government and the ruling powers, I am going to surrender myself to them. Instead of showing them that that I am in charge, I'm going to let them have their way with me. And Peter will not stand for this. Peter, Matthew tells us, takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. Because Peter sees, he has eyes to see, he thinks that he has the the right to advise Jesus. Now Jesus, you really don't understand what it means to be a Messiah. This is what it means to be a Messiah. Jesus responds quite harshly to Peter. In verse 23, he says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Just a few verses earlier, Peter is speaking words of God, and now Jesus is saying, you're speaking the words that are given to you by Satan. Peter was rock solid, so firm that that, that a foundation could be used to describe him. And now he is a rock that is a stumbling block. How does Peter go from one position to the other so rapidly? Jesus lays the blame at the feet of his vision. That what he is looking at is not God's plan, but he is focusing on selfish preferences. That he is looking at how all of this impacts him. Jesus, if you surrender yourself, then what does that mean for me? I have taken my strength from you. I have found my joy in you. And if you go away, if they do things to you, then what are they going to do to me? That is what is motivating Peter rebuking Jesus is his selfish concerns. He is, has become myopic. He can't see beyond the end of his own nose. As a preteen, my 
best friend and I, one Saturday morning, went out on the town in Duncan, Oklahoma with our Super Soaker 100s, a water gun. And as we left my front yard, we saw an animal in our neighbor's yard, and I, I told my friend that it was probably my neighbor's cat, and he looked at that animal and said, it's not a cat, it was a, a bunny rabbit. We decide to chase the animal with our water guns and we get it cornered after a while and it was only after we get it cornered that we then discover that it was neither a cat nor a bunny rabbit, it was an armadillo. And we had seen armadillos before. The, the problem wasn't that we didn't know what an armadillo was or what an armadillo looked like. The problem was that we were both nearsighted and neither one of us were wearing our glasses at the time. I read an NPR article a couple of years ago that scientists are discovering that nearsightedness is becoming an increasing problem. They predict that um, in just a few decades that, that more than 4.7 billion people will have uh, myopia or, or be nearsighted. That's half of the world's population. According to Dr. Ivan Schwab, a professor of ophthalmology at UC Davis, he says that, that the, the increase is the result of education. That children, younger and younger, are starting to do more and more up-close work and that our eyes are growing more oblong, longer, which is good for seeing up-close and not so good for seeing far away. And that same phenomenon takes place within our churches. That we, over time, begin to grow more and more focused on ourselves. This morning we are drawing to a close our study called Remember. As we look at the primary metaphor in Scripture, for what it means to be a member of the body of Christ, it, it is a, a body. And we too often can confuse cultural membership with biblical membership. And we begin to approach church in a similar frame of mind that we approach a restaurant. So after we leave, we will begin to evaluate and critique the worship. That the music was too loud or it was not my preferred style. That someone sat in my spot. We even talk about the opening of Scripture as somebody providing food for us. And we will choose to leave one congregation and attend another if we feel like we are not being fed. And if the process of feeding us takes too long, we get a little bit grumpy. But the reality is, it is not my job to feed you. My job is to train you. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, that all of the gifts that are given to the church are given for this 
purpose. Verse 12, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. There's an ancient practice of prayer called the examine in which you reflect on the, the last 24 hours or so of your day and you think through where you noticed God. And in this practice, it is often counseled that, that you ask yourselves where you felt most alive, where you felt most connected with life and joy and love. Because Jesus is life. He has come to give us life. And it's not just life after the grave, but it's life on this side of the grave as well. But one of the dangers in just simply asking that question is we start to think that we are connected with God when everything goes my way. That everything that I ask of God, He does. But whenever that happens, if you get everything that you want whenever you come to church, then we have to ask ourselves, what God is it that we're worshiping? Are we worshiping the God who created all things? Or are we worshiping ourselves? Because Christ is the head. And Jesus says that the cure for nearsightedness is self-sacrifice. He tells His disciples that anyone who intends to come after Me has to let Me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow Me and I'll show you how. Our focus is not serve us, but rather service. This is not a restaurant where you come to place your order, but rather it is an academy where you receive your marching orders. Since I have been here, one of the most frequent requests that I hear from talking with some of you is, is why can't we just have one service? That we... We are, are suffering from the fear of missing out. That there are, there are people that are in another worship service and I don't know them, they don't know me, and, and, and I don't know what's being said in that service and somehow it may be different. Now, let me push back against that for just a moment. Because for many of us, we think that it's just such an easy solution. That if we can all fit in one space, why can't we just have one service? But what is the motivation for making that kind of request? Is the, the motivation just that, that a, a room that is more full is going to make me feel better? That I enjoy listening to singing better whenever there are more people in a room and it starts to drown out my own singing? 
Or do we really believe that we are fulfilling the mission of Christ? Because our unity is not found in a name that's on a building. It's not found in being all in the same place at the same time. It's not found in a certain set of practices. Our unity is found in being under the head of Jesus Christ. Sunflowers are a fascinating flower. You may have observed that that they follow, the head of the sunflower follows the sun through the sky. I didn't know until just recently that sunflowers actually, they continue to follow the sun all the way around. 360 degrees all throughout the night even though the sun isn't visible they still orient themselves by the sun and even though there are um, dozens hundreds of seeds inside that one single flower their unity is dependent upon the sun jesus says to the charter member and to the not yet a member. God gave me a mission in the world, and I'm giving you a mission in the world. Elsewhere he says, go and figure out what this Scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite outsiders, not coddle insiders. Too often, churches function as if this is a democracy. That if we just have the majority of people that want one thing, then we can do that. But we have been given a mission. We are not here to make ourselves feel better, but we are here to equip ourselves. So that we can go out and serve the mission of Jesus. And Jesus said that His mission was not to take those who are already inside the community of God and say, hey, you need to feel a little bit more comfortable. But instead, to take those who are inside the community of God and remind them that they exist for those who are not inside the community of God. Here at the colonies, we have chosen to frame this idea by saying that we are a church of Christ. We exist for Christ. That's what it means to be a church of Christ. That we exist for Christ and because of Christ. And we seek to bring people to Christ. That is our mission everything that we do gets filtered through it does this help us bring people to christ and by doing so we discover together how to be more like christ
you have the pledge there at the bottom of your outline. It'll be on the screen as well. If you would, please stand. As together we remember why we exist. Read with me. I am a church member. I will not let my church be about my preferences and desires. That is self-serving. I am a member of this church to serve others and to serve Christ. My Savior went to a cross for me. I can deal with any inconveniences and matters that are not my preference or style. Throughout this series, I have been inviting you to remember what it means to be a member. And as we wrap up this series, I want to offer an invitation. An, off, an invitation for us to, to live this out. Offer an invitation for those of you that are here that you attend regularly, but you have not committed yourself to being a member, to practicing your membership here with us. You can do that now. There may also be some here who have not come to Christ, have not come under Christ. That you have not put to death your preferences, your desires, your sinful self into the grave of baptism. I want to invite you to respond to the message of Jesus Christ. Some of our shepherds will be at the back of the auditorium. I'll, I'll be at the front. If there's some way that we can assist you, we invite you to come as Dusty leads us.